All right, so this is part two of the lesson of who owns your possessions. Um, this is the final week on this. And this comes out of Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19. You can follow along. Do not store up, this is Jesus, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what the heart of this lesson uh, is about, understanding that whatever you have, whatever you own, it's all God's. And by the way, I'm not just speaking about uh, money and possessions. The lesson relates primarily to possessions, but it also relates to the gifts that you have, the talents that you have. Don't go around saying, boy, am I glad I'm a smart guy or a smart lady. Look at me. I'm smarter than all my neighbors. You know, I'm able to think clearer and better, and God is, you know, I've got all these gifts. Whatever God has given you, it is from him. Really, you can't take ownership over anything. And when you get to the point when you bow in submission and say, I recognize everything that I am is from you, then you are honoring God. And you know, when you do this, it makes a week like we just had in the stock market a lot more easy to swallow. Am I right? You know, because here's the deal. Look, we all have our retirement funds, our 401ks, and we're sitting there and we're almost fearful of turning the radio on. Okay, I can't hear it. Oh my God, a thousand points. Oh, I'm going to be out in the street. No, you will not be out in the street. You've committed yourself to God. God will take care of you. You have to believe that. All right? You have to believe that. Uh, and when you believe that, God honors that. So I want to, this is all part of, of, of understanding this lesson. And so we saw it last week when we saw Jesus speaking uh, to the uh, wealthy young man who came to him uh, and said, uh, uh, Lord, what do I need to have to inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus looked at him and he said, well, you have to uh, follow the commandments. And he says, I followed them all. Since I've been a youth, and of course, Jesus knew that he had not. In fact, just with that statement, he'd broken another commandment. He lied. I mean, that's the point of understanding our, the, the nature of our flesh. He lied, okay? He lied, and Jesus then said to him, well, one thing you lack, you need to go and sell all of your goods, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, that's the only place that I can find in Scripture where, where Jesus said, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the reason for that is that Jesus does not expect you to give up everything that you have and go sit on the curb as a mendicant. That's not what he's interested in. But he's interested that you understand who owns your possessions. He's interested that you don't worship your uh, possessions and get obsessed. And when you see that in that man's life, the young man turned away sad. He couldn't do it. He didn't follow Jesus because the prescription was so severe for him that he was unable to follow it. And so what a lesson that is for us. Uh, and so what a great deal Jesus gave to him. Here's the deal. Give up what you have here, and you'll have much more on the other side. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it because we have such limited vision. We don't really see the other side. And yet we understand as Christians that the other side is so much greater than this side, so much more profound in so many ways. Turn, if you would, to James chapter 1. 
verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There it is. There's, you want to know what to do with your worldly goods? There it is. Taking care of those that need it, the less fortunate. That's, that, that's where there's a profound need. Uh, and by the way, as I, t- I teach this to you, uh, I want you to understand that uh, this lesson that I'm giving you is far greater than a lesson on tithing. Let's understand that. This is not a lesson on tithing, uh, because when we get tied up with tithing, we start doing mathematical analysis. You understand? Okay, yeah, this is, I've carved this off for you, God. I can barely reach that far. The rest is mine. No, no, no. I'm not interested in tithing. I'm not teaching you about tithing. I'm teaching you about the fact that everything is his. It's all his. All right? Now, I'm not saying, and this the other part of the lesson, I don't believe that you have to give uh, 100% of your tithe to, the, to a church. I don't believe that. I think it goes to the general kingdom of God. Now, a chunk of that goes to the church. Let's, make, not, make, let's not make that mistake, because if I don't say that, I'll be in the parking lot next week. <laughs> Let's face it, that's why you come. You'll love to hear those comments. But, but, but the point of it is this. When you approach this, not from a tithing perspective, but from an ownership of your possessions, everything changes. Everything changes. Uh, there was a story that I told at the 11 o'clock class last week that I failed to tell here. Uh, and I hope that when I tell a story... Uh, an anecdote that advances the lesson that I'm teaching. I don't just tell stories for the case of filling up time. When Linda and I were first married, we moved into a town uh, called Nutley, New Jersey. And Nutley, New Jersey had just been voted uh, the safest city in America. Then we moved in. (laughs) And and shortly, (laughs) shortly after we moved in, our house got robbed. Our house got robbed, and it was amazing. And they ransacked the house, even to the point where they took down ceiling fixtures. All right? We had just gotten a puppy. Luckily, they didn't steal a puppy. The puppy was up on the second floor. He couldn't come down. And we went home, and the front door was wide open, and the house was ransacked. But here's the story. We had a drawer in the desk. It wasn't a secret drawer. It was just a regular drawer on the front of the desk in which we put all of our tithe money in. And that drawer was pretty full of money. And they did not touch it. It was almost as if an angel stood in front of that drawer. It was an amazing thing to see. I mean, it, it, it taught me early on about God's power and what God's possessions are and understanding that. So uh, that is a true story, uh, and I hope that that resonates in, in your life. And so you see this here, how an actual wealthy man, the disciples had a chance to see it, how a wealthy man could fall in love, could fall in love with his possessions uh, and therefore affect his life in such a negative way. Uh, in another part of the scriptures in Mark on the same story, it says he went away sad. His face 
fell. And so what, he saw, what we see there is that manifestation of that young man. We don't know too much more about him, but we know for sure that he broke uh, two commandments. Uh, first of all, he had broken the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me, Exodus 23. That was one of the commandments that Jesus said, which of all the commandments are the greatest? And Jesus said that one was the first one. Thou shalt love, uh, put no other God before me. Uh, love no other person. Don't have any other icon uh, but God himself. Don't worship in any way or become obsessed with anything beyond God himself. Uh, and also, uh, the, the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so Jesus has proven that you cannot serve God and money. You cannot do it. Now, if you look back in, in Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 24. And you know, Abraham Lincoln read the Bible extensively, and you'll see some of these passages show up in his speeches, especially this one about serving two masters. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. You cannot. So if you truly love God, and this is all about understanding worship and submission and understanding that. And so if you do that uh, and, and understand that issue, you will understand why God insists that he comes first. And, and that God will give you what you need. He will take care of you. He will bless you uh, in every possible way. And so it's important for you to understand uh, these things. Now, the third reason why Jesus warns his followers about an improper concern for possessions is in that same passage in verses 22 and 23. Look at that. Matthew 6, 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying to you that the very perspective of your life is changed. If you worship the wrong thing, you, you, you have these glasses that are colored with your possessions. When you come upon a need or you know where you're called upon to do something, you see through the prism of darkness, not the prism of light. Uh, and important to understand this. It's distorted. Uh, it's only when the window is clean and the light comes in that we get an undistorted view of what God wants for us. And so the question for you today is, do you see spiritual things clearly? Do you see them clearly? Turn to Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, verse 22. A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. How's that? So if you are the kind of person obsessed with your wealth and your possessions and you don't give it away, don't worry about it. It'll get taken away from you. Don't worry about it, all right? All right, and even if you think you've held on to it to the end and then you die, well, I'm, let me have a clue for you. You're not taking it with you, okay? As my father said all the time, you never see a, an armored Brinks truck in a funeral procession. I thought that was worthy of a laugh. <laughs> well, all right, I understand. It's not as funny as the other things, but that's the point of understanding the fact that you can't take it with you. It's limited, 
Uh, and so verse 24 in that same section deals with the mutually exclusive nature of serving God and riches. Uh, can anything be more insulting to God who has redeemed you from sin, who has bankrupted heaven to send God himself, Jesus Christ, his son, to earth, that you would, in fact, take the world over what God has given? Just think about that. Can there be anything more insulting? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, and so Jesus is, is telling us this. Who owns your possessions? He does. What is the perspective? His perspective. Now, let's understand this. As we teach this, uh, you understanding this, giving is not God's way of raising money. Let me break it to you. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your money, all right? But God needs your heart. He's interested in your heart and your submission. And so when I give away part of what God has given me, effectively what I am doing is I'm worshiping him. It is the most sublime, poignant kind of worship that I say to God, Father, I love you so very much with all my heart, and I recognize that whatever I have, I've given you, and in this way, Father, I'm giving back to you what, what's yours, what you own. I thank you for all the blessings in my heart. That's kind of how this whole act takes place. It is about submission. Everything that you do that God is interested in is submission. Have you submitted your heart? Have you bowed to him and, and, and see him in that way? It is about sacrificial giving and worship. Let me repeat that. It is about sacrificial giving and worship. And I can find no better example of that than if I study the, the uh, issue of the widow's might. You're familiar with that, right? Turn to uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. This is a lesson in which you get a real insight into the economics of God. That's not like the economics of man, all right? Because the economics of man would be this. Oh, the guy who can give the big check. That's the guy we got to wine and dine. That's the guy we got to take care of. That's the guy. You see, no, that's not how God looks at it. God looks at the sacrifice of the gift, the sacrifice of the heart. Look at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And by the way, that's, I'm sure, not an accident. I can imagine this, that there they are in the in the temple area, and Jesus is sitting right away from where they put, this, put the offerings, and Jesus is sitting there. It's like Jesus does that today. Opposite the place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. I saw a clip on this once. It came out of the Fort Lauderdale Baptist Church, and they were teaching on this lesson, and they, and they, they did a videotape, you know, kind of a parody, of a basket being passed. Uh, and they, had, they showed one guy who had written a sizable check. And when the basket came, he was like going like this. <laughs> this is not that story. This is not that story. 
Jesus watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts of money, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. A pittance. A pittance. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Do you see how God looks at the nature of the sacrifice, the, the, the proportionality? And so even, even in that, even in that, some of us may look and say, oh, I've given a very sizable check. Yes, but is that really out of the sacrifice of your heart? And yet, and somebody else will say to me, well, I'm, I'm poor. I'm poor. I can't afford to give anything. And I always say this. Here's the lesson for you. You need to be a part of the kingdom of God. You need to put your brick in its place. Each of us has a brick a place. And so you see that in this lesson. This speaks to me so powerfully uh, that, that this is how God wants us to live and to worship and to do this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever it is, whatever you do, whether, whether it's giving or giving of your time uh, or, or, or just helping, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. He gave you the gifts. He gave you uh, the talent. And so you basically give it back to him. Uh, and the problem is that for much of us, we do this out of the indulgence of self. How can I be lifted up? How can I be honored? No, no, it's not about that. You know, it's, it's, you know, you see this when it comes to time to giving in the world and, and, you know, universities or even the hospitals. And you see, you'll see names on the hospital, this and that, or in a university, this building. And in the things of God, no, no, we don't, you know, we don't look to elevate the self in the things of God. We look to elevate God. Uh, so now let's understand this part of the lesson. I want to drill this home. It is a misinterpretation of scriptures to say that Christians cannot own property. All right? Don't buy that. Jesus was not a socialist. Jesus was not a communist. Don't take isolated sections of the scripture and build a theology on it. That's false. The first century church, when it first started, was a church that shared in everything as it got started. But that is not the paradigm for today. The paradigm for today is that God wants you to work hard. He wants you to save your money and recognize that whatever you have is, is in the glory of God, that he owns it all, that you do not get uh, obsessed with his things. And, and I'll prove this to you by giving you some uh, scripture. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. And this is where God makes a covenant with his people. That they're about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Now, here it is. They're walking, about to walk into the promised land, and God is giving them a covenant, a conditional covenant, not an unconditional covenant. Those of you who've come on Monday know there's a difference between the unconditional and the conditional. This is a covenant that lasts if you obey me. And look what it says here, verse, 20, verse 
28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at one point from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. Look, folks, you understand this. God wants to bless you, all right? God is not a miser. God is not stingy. God wants you to have these kind of things, but you have to follow him. You have to obey him. Look also at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. So you see that he gives you the authority. He gives you uh, the power. Uh, and look now at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Give your Bible a workout. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, I can prove this further by looking at some of the great patriarchs uh, in the Bible. Uh, for example, Abraham was called a friend of God, yet Abraham was very wealthy, all right? So for those of you who think it's a sin to be wealthy, that God doesn't bless uh, those who are wealthy. Turn, to, turn, first of all, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Your friend. Understand that. Look also now at Genesis 13, verse 6. But the land could not support them. This is Lot, Lot, his nephew, and Abraham. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. How do you like that? They were so blessed, the enormous amount of blessings, it says basically in other places, that Abraham was one of the wealthiest people uh, in the world. Now turn to Job chapter 1. You getting tired? I'm not. Job chapter 1. All right? Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest among the people of the East. He was number one. He was the wealthiest guy in all the world at that time. The wealthiest guy. Well, you know the story of Job. You know that at the end of the day, he's going to go through trials and tribulations because Job had to learn that God was number one. 
There was some pride in Job. And so God wanted Job to be an example to us today. And so Job loses everything, everything, uh, because Satan was saying that Job only followed God because God blessed him. And, and God wanted to show to Satan that that wasn't the case. And he also wanted to show Job that God came first. Now look at the end of Job. Look at chapter 42. Job 42, verse 12. Now, this is the end. This is at the end of Job's life. He's, everything's wiped out, but now God has cleaned the slate and given him everything back plus. Look, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. You understand this? It's, everything's been doubled. What he had when he was called in the beginning, the wealthiest man in the, in the world, now it's double because it's from God, all right? God owns everything, and God gave it to him. And he also had seven sons and three daughters, and you see this, uh, and in verse 16, after this, Job lived, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. And so you see this incredible story. Now, we know also that uh, when Christ was crucified, when Christ was crucified, uh, that he was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. Now, how would Jesus, who had nothing, had no money, didn't have his own house. How would Jesus come to be buried in the tomb of a wealthy man? Turn to Matthew 27. And I want to show you how God uses possessions and wealth for the advancement of the kingdom. Matthew 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. And by the way, he was on the Sanhedrin. Uh, who was a Pharisee, named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the rock. Uh, uh, he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, let's understand something. Let's understand something. Turn to Isaiah 53, because I'm going to show you how this was foreordained and how God uses the possessions even of wealthy people who are committed to serving God. Isaiah 53, verse 9. This speaks now prophetically of the Messiah, of Jesus, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and that Jesus was. There was a place where they dumped all the bodies of those who were crucified in an open grave. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And with the rich in his death. That could only have come about prophetically 700 years later because God touched the heart of a rich man who opened up and gave uh, Jesus the tomb of a wealthy man. Do you see how God writes everything down and puts it all together? Now, somebody told me a story about this, which I think I'll share with you, and that's this. You know, how, could jo how could Joseph of Arimathea give up this tomb that he had for himself, this wealthy tomb? Uh, and effectively, what it was is they asked Joseph that, and he said, Oy vey, I knew he would only need it for the weekend. 
You like that? I can't do any better than that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much, Lord, for the lessons that you've taught us, how this resonates in our heart. Now, Lord, we understand and we come out of here committed to saying to you, Father, we recognize that what we have, you gave to us, that nothing that we have, including our gifts and our talents, are from our own well-being, but through your grace. And so, Lord, I ask you that you make us mindful of that, that we continue to have the proper light in our eyes, that we don't serve two masters, that we serve you, and that in everything we, we do, we elevate you, we submit to you, and point others to you in everything that, that takes place. Father, bless our people. Be with them this week and continue to bring them back for the study of your word next Sunday. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.